Good morning. Those chocolates are actually really good. So if you haven't had one yet, I've sampled a couple of them. They're, they're excellent. The sermon might not be good today, but it will be full of energy. Okay. So uh, baseball. In 94-95, at the end of the 94 season, Major League Baseball, they went on strike. The players went on strike. In the beginning of 95, in spring training time, the owners decided to bring in replacement players. Now, these players weren't from the minor leagues because the minor leagues was actually on strike too. These players were guys who were like coaching Little League, and the next week they were, had Red Sox uniforms on, right? So this was... This was absolutely amazing. This was a dream come true for these guys. They would show up early and the groundskeeper would run them off the field at night because they just didn't want, they didn't want, they wanted to soak up every second of this experience of what it was like to wear a major league uniform. It was fascinating. They were full of joy. They were full of excitement. It was for the love of the game. The manager would ask, does anybody want to go to the outfield? Anybody want to go to the outfield and catch some fly balls? A dozen hands would go up right here. I want to go. They thanked the caterers for the food. They thanked the people who washed their uniforms. They thanked the fans for just showing up to see them. The line of players to sign autographs was longer than the line of fans to receive the autographs. One guy offered a team $100,000 if they would just sign him, please. A manager said, our radar guns can't even pick up the pitches because they're so slow, we can't clock them. The Cleveland Indians gave five players to the Cincinnati Reds in the biggest trade of the season, five players Cincinnati Reds for totally free. They said... Just take them. Just, just take them. Just take them, please. All right? The Phillies gave away free hot dogs and, and sodas. These guys were just happy and filled with joy to be there because they were living a life they did not deserve to live. They were living a life that they did not deserve to do. We've been talking about this thing called the gospel. And this, if this is your first time here or your first time at West Falls Church or Grace Live, all of these sermons in Romans that we're into, and I think this is week number nine now, all of these sermons are online, so you can, you can catch up. But everything we're going to talk about today is kind of a culmination of what we have been talking about for the past nine weeks. So it's bringing that together. The gospel is the story of the life of Jesus Christ. Who is he? The gospel is a person, and his name is Jesus and what he did and why he did it. So this is what it's bringing together. And here when we get to Romans chapter 5, it is a turning point because it begins with the word therefore. And as people say about Paul, every therefore is therefore a reason. And it's the turning point in Romans. We have been talking about a lot about the cross, a lot about what the cross represents. Like we have all fallen short. We are all guilty. We are all sinners. And now the end of Romans chapter four, the very last verse before this turning point in five, all of a sudden Paul talks about the resurrection of Jesus. He was raised to life. Jesus was raised Easter for our, and then he says this word, justification. And what we're going to talk about today is what many, many people believe is the most important doctrine in the Christian faith. Like, what is it actually that Christians believe? Well, scholars will tell you, this is it. This is the doctrine. Martin Luther says the church stands or falls on this doctrine. So if we're going to understand anything about the gospel and understand anything about what it means to believe in the doctrine of Christianity or to be a follower of Jesus Christ, we have to get really clear on this one because this one's called 
justification. And we're going to dig into it. And I want to say one thing before we do. I'm going to tell you a story. Because what we're going to bring up today, justification, has been somewhat of a hotly debated issue throughout the years. Very hotly debated. And I have a particular sensitivity to it because of my grandmother. My grandmother was a very godly grandmother. She prayed all the time. She read the Bible. She loved the Psalms. She loved King David. She would often quote the Psalms or King David. She would say, David of old. You know, Johnny... As David of old would say, and she'd quote that, and she would pray for everybody. She loved everybody. She was kind to everybody. I had a friend of mine that was actually living at my grandmother's house. Her name was Nana. Everybody called her Nana. Living at her house for a while, and he's like, she's so holy. Everything she does is just so holy. I mean, just, he said, I walked past her room one day, her bedroom, and the door was just barely cracked. She wasn't in there, and I saw this glow coming from the room, and I opened it, and I saw the Ark of the Covenant in there. I was like, man, she's just, she's, she's just so holy. And I never saw my grandmother get frustrated, never, but one time. She got frustrated one time with me. And it's when I brought up the issue that we're going to talk about today. And I just had suggested about justification and the, the meaning of the doctrine to be eternally secure in your relationship with God. And she's like, oh, no. And I just dropped it. (laughs) I said, okay. So I understand. I just want to offer something because Romans chapter 5 is the premier passage to talk about this. So So we have to talk about this. And it's the culmination in many ways of everything that we have been talking about. It's where we lead to. So just something to think about. If you haven't thought about this before, I bet a bunch of us in this room have thought about it before. It's something for us to think about, Romans chapter 5. Okay. When you are secure, a, a child growing up, if a child grows up in an environment of security, like they're secure in their home. They're secure with their family. They're secure in that relationship. It has profound positive impact. We know that. And what I was thinking about doing today is beginning this message off with a lot of stats about how that affects us in profound ways. Some of you have been affected positively or negatively by security or insecurity in your home. But then Tuesday night, I went to an organization that we're considering partnering with, and I listened to a talk that was given by somebody, and I thought, you know what? No stats. I just want to, God, this was a great gift. Thank you. I just want to share this story. It was a, a girl. She's about 20 years old, and she shared that she had lived in more than 10 foster homes, and her life was filled with insecurity, and that had negatively affected her so badly her own outlook on herself, the world, everything. But then she said she got involved with this organization and they they took her into one of their homes and there were people there who genuinely cared for her and that, and then she says this, they were constantly there for her. They showed her love. And then as she's talking about it, in tears of joy, she's crying. She just starts crying. She's like, I, I, I know I'm crying, everybody, but these are tears of joy. I am so happy. These people have changed my life because nobody was ever just there for me. I had total insecurity, but these people were just constantly there. They created an environment. And then she looks to the back of the room and she points at two of them. She says, look at them. They're no longer even with the organization right now. And yet they're still here for me now. 
And that security profoundly impacted her in a positive way. It filled her with tears of joy. I thought, well, that's amazing. Is the same true in our relationship with God? Are we secure in our relationship with Christ? There's one fill in the blank today, just one. And that is this. Eternal security unleashes our joy. When we know that we are secure in our relationship with God, that we're not going to get kicked off the team, right? And that's where this whole thing breaks down, doesn't it? In 95, because eventually the owner said, look, we can't keep going on with this situation with these players. We've got to bring back the good players and they kicked the bad players off the team. What if you had a no cut contract? What if you knew that you were in? right? No matter what, this is what we're talking about today. Eternal security unleashes our joy. We can either have eternal security or we can have eternal insecurity. What is the scripture telling us? Is it telling us we're secure or is it telling us we're insecure in our relationship with God? Let's break this down. Romans 5 verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have been justified by faith. What does the word justification mean? It leads us into having peace with God. The word justification means to be declared righteous, to be declared righteous. In this context, it means to be declared right in your relationship with God. That's why it says peace with God. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. He brings us into a peaceful relationship with God, a peaceful, permanent relationship with God. That is why he's the Prince of Peace. It's shalom. Shalom in the Bible means to be in harmony with somebody. You are now in harmony with God because what Jesus Christ has done, not what you have done. No good work could get you into harmony with God. No bad work can get you out of harmony with God is what this is pointing to. You have been declared righteous. You are on the team. You have a no-cut contract is what this is pointing us to. It has changed our relationship. That's why it says you have peace with God. We don't necessarily use the word justify or justification a lot unless you start talking to a bunch of theologians. And they says, yes, justification is the most important doctrine of the church. But we will say something every now and then like, well, you'll make a statement. And you'll say, well, can you justify? Can you, can you justify that statement? Like I could say to you, the Washington Redskins are a fantastic football organization. And you might say, well, John, can you justify that statement? And I'd say, no, I can't. <laughs> and so your relationship, your relationship to that statement has been unchanged. I could say to you in the 1990s, the Chicago Bulls were a phenomenal basketball organization. Justify that statement. Well, they won six championships. Okay, good. Now you've changed everything about my relationship to your statement. Because of what Jesus Christ has done, he has changed our relationship with God. He's brought peace. He's brought shalom. He's brought us into a permanent harmony with Almighty God. Verse number two. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace. Notice what it says, into this grace in which we stand. We're standing in grace permanently, permanently standing in grace. A few weeks ago, we had motor oil out here on the stage, and we said that motor oil is like grace, that an engine, you know, is a powerful thing. It's an incredible thing. There's all these parts, and it, it you know, works towards something great, moving us around, whatever it might be, mowing our lawn. But if it doesn't have oil, all the parts of the engine, all those different parts, friction will build up and the parts will actually destroy each other. And so 
Motor oil, grace. Grace comes in to reduce that friction. And what it says is we're standing in an unlimited supply of motor oil. So a lot of times we think, you know what? It's all by the power of Jesus Christ. It's all by the grace of God. It's 100% Christ that I get into my relationship with God, that I find my peace with God, that I find my harmony with God. But after I'm in, it's 100% up to me to maintain that, to continue that relationship. It's 100% up to me which would not make sense. He's saying, it's by, grace that, it's by grace that you got in it. It's by grace that you continue to stand in that relationship with God. Now, because of all that, it says we rejoice. And it's the first of three times that you see in this short passage that it says we have joy, that we rejoice. We rejoice because we have a no-cut contract, that we are eternally secure. And we receive all the benefits, that incredible security. The number one complaint that I hear about this, and I'm sure this is running through some of your minds right now. The number one complaint is, okay, if you're telling me that I'm in and I have a no-cut contract, what incentive do I have to be good? Is there any incentive whatsoever for me to live a good life? Never forget, it was a number of years ago, I was, uh, we were doing a Bible study at church. We actually, a couple different places up at our office in Boston, and there was a guy there, and we were talking about this, and he said, now wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're telling me that there's no incentive for me to pray and for me to read my Bible and to do good works and, and, and actually even to go to church or go to a Bible study? Is this what you're saying this is saying? And we said, yes. And he said, well, why am I here? Why am I here? And it kind of just hung over the room. And then he says, you know what? Knowing that actually makes me want to be here. This is based on a relationship. And it's based on love. And if the incentive only is that you're going to lose something that God gives you, have you gotten in to Christianity because you want to get God? Or have you gotten into Christianity because you want to get something from God? Earlier we read in Romans that no one seeks God, and we talked about this. Are we seeking the hand of God, or are we seeking the relationship with God? That's what, it, that's what I'm talking about here. The gospel completely transforms us. It changes us completely by trusting in him. I've had so many conversations that go along this line of the thing we're talking about right here. There's no incentive. You have to think about what are you trusting in. Paul talks a lot about this word boasting. He uses it in all of his writings, including Romans, boasting. Boasting is something that you're confident in, something that you trust in. You would boast. So when armies would square off against each other, they would boast, you know, our, our archers are better than you and we're going to kill you tomorrow. They would boast. It was like a military term. They would boast. This is what we are trusting in. We're trusting in the fact that we have this, or our king's better than yours, our general's better than yours, something's better than yours, but this is what we trust, and this is why we're going to win. And so when I talk to people, I'm like, okay, eternal security, but wait, but wait a minute, I can't be eternally secure because what if I did that? Yeah, but what, but what, if, what if I did that? If I did that, I could not be in a relationship with God, or they'll say a lot of times, I know I'm imperfect. I know I'm imperfect. I'm not perfect. But, but at least I'm not doing what those people over there are doing. And whatever it is that you're pointing to over there is what you really are trusting in. 
Whatever there is, whatever X is, you know what? I am imperfect, but I don't do X, and they're doing X, so they can't be in a relationship with God, so X is what you trust in. If you trust in Christ, then you boast in Christ, is which that's what Paul says. You don't point to the things that you do or you don't do. You point to Jesus Christ and what he has done. And it's completely different. It's 100% trusting in Christ. You enter into a relationship in harmony with God, peace with God through the power of Christ. You don't then maintain that relationship by your own power. That would not make sense. You didn't get in because of your good works. You can't get in because of your out because of your bad works. You're not going to be cut from the team. Perfect love, we're told in the Bible, drives out all fear. Now, fear is easy. It's an easy motivation. Growing up in my church, my church did a lot of fear stuff. There's a lot of fear stuff. I was completely confused about the gospel. For me, the gospel was all about, it was all about fear. We showed a movie when I was a teenager called The Thief in the Night. Some of you maybe have seen it. And it ends in a very scary way with this big white guillotine coming down and killing a bunch of people. And I can remember in the aftermath of that movie being just so, I mean, I just wanted to make sure I was so uptight and afraid. I want to make sure I did everything right all the time because I didn't want to lose my relationship with Christ. And I'll never forget it. We live right down the street, right off of George Mason Drive. And it was, I think it was, a, it was, a, it was definitely, it was a weekday night, a work day in Washington, D.C. And it was around 530 and the streets were eerily quiet. Like nobody was out. And I couldn't get a hold of my mom and dad. Like, where are they? Oh my gosh. There's nobody on the streets. It's quiet. Jesus has come back. I've been left behind. The guillotine is, the guillotine is waiting for me. I'm running. I'm making phone calls. I'm looking and I'm out the street. Where is everybody? Nobody's around. I've been left. I have been left behind. Ran inside. My sister was there and I said, that really doesn't matter. You know, What's happening? You know, what's happening here? I was living in fear. I wasn't living in joy. I was living in fear. I was living in a panic. I was insecure. When you understand the gospel, you understand there is a security. Once I finally understood it, and it wasn't until my 20s, once it finally dawned, once I awakened to what this is saying, I lost all fear of insecurity. I felt completely secure. And you know what also happened to me? I never began to ask the question, oh, I can just live any way I want. We're going to get more into that in, in just a second. Verse 3. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings. Because of the security that Paul has found in crisis, even when times are really bad, because I know I'm totally secure, in my, I have a no-cut contract, I'm always on Christ's team. Even in bad times, I can rejoice. In our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame because God's here. This is really important. It's one of my favorite verses in the Bible. Because God's love, because of the gospel, because I've accepted the gospel, because I've understood the gospel, because I've been awakened to faith in the gospel, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. How could I possibly live any way I want? You know, Paul's not concerned really about this question. Jesus isn't really concerned about this question. We say to ourselves, if you're eternally secure, people are just going to live any way they want. If you have experienced truly the power of the gospel, you would never even ask that question. 
When I finally awakened to what this is saying, I never even thought about it. I never, I, I never think, oh my gosh, I can do anything I want. Love has been poured into my heart. When love increases, selfishness decreases. It changed me dramatically. It tra- is the gospel powerful or isn't it? If you're afraid of eternal security because you're worried that you or other people are going to live any way they want, I would just ask you, have you experienced what Paul says is the power of the gospel? Because if you really have experienced, then you know, my gosh, there's no way I could just live any way I wanted. I would never do that because I've, I've had the power of his love poured into my heart. And when love increases, selfishness decreases. And that means I can't live any way I want. Ethically, morally, sexually, doesn't matter. Everything changes because now I'm concerned about God and I'm concerned about other people in a new and powerful and profound way. This is what he said. It's being poured into my heart. Verse 6. For while we were still weak at that right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one... This, this is really good. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us. I, I just have to stop and make comment about that verse real quick. Some of your uh, translations, if you're reading along, says God demonstrates. He shows, he demonstrates his love for us. This is where you, and if you've been around a while, you hear me say this all the time. A lot of people say, I, I believe in a God of love. I, why? Why in the world would you believe in a God of love? You know, I don't believe Jesus had to come and die, you know, on a cross. I don't, I just, I just believe in a God of love. All of us measure love by sacrifice. It's the way the world works. Nobody looks at a couple walking down a beach that have had nothing but a perfect life with no problems and no challenges. And they're walking on the beach of the Hawaii and we say, oh my gosh, look how they love each other. We look at stories like Titanic and whatever the guy's name was on it, who like gave up his, the, the, what was that door? It looked like there was room on the door for him, but he didn't, right? So, you know what I'm saying to me? He died so she could live. So she, so she could live. So many stories about this over and over because we always measure it by sacrifice. He demonstrated. Is there a demonstration anywhere of a God who sacrifices for you? There's tons of demonstrations about how we sacrifice for God. There's a lot of those out there. There's a lot all around the world. Do you know of another where God sacrifices for you in a demonstration of his love for you? For you. He demonstrates. Let's move on. I didn't plan to do that. While we're still sinners, Christ died for us. Since therefore, we have now been justified by his blood. Much more shall we be saved from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled in the relationship, reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. More than that, we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we now have received reconciliation. Jesus Christ made the ultimate sacrifice. He gave his life when, when you were out of a relationship with him, when you did not have peace with God, when you were not reconciled. And if he made the ultimate sacrifice while you were disconnected from God, how much more is God going to make sure that you're okay when you're now becomes, as Jesus says, his friend, friends of God, reconciled to God, at peace with God. If he does it 
when you're so distant from him, how is he going to do it now that he has adopted you as his very own child and died on the cross for you? If he did it then when you were disconnected, wouldn't you think he's going to do it much more? And we're told that he lives his life interceding for you, that you would be at peace praying for you. This is, this is who he is. This is what he does. We are secure. We are not going to be kicked off the team. We're not eternally insecure, which leads to a lot of bad stuff. Insecurity doesn't lead to good things. We are eternally secure in God's love. Now, Paul says later in a letter to the church at Ephesus, he's talking about at the very end of that letter in Ephesians 6, that there's like this warfare that goes on, like a, like a spiritual warfare. That the enemy of our souls, the devil, is fighting against us. And one of the things is you got to put on armor. You got to put on, he says, you got to put on this, this helmet of salvation. Why would he say that? A helmet of salvation. Salvation that you have been, that your relationship is secure. Why would you have to do that? Because the enemy comes against us with doubts. This is what the enemy does. He focuses on doubts. You're not secure. God doesn't love you. He's going to reject you. He's going to kick you off of his team. And so Paul says you've got to put on the helmet of salvation because the enemy is going to come at you with so many doubts, doubting your security in him of his love for you. Paul says later in 2 Timothy, if we are faithless, God remains faithful. What is really a question here is, can Jesus keep his promises? He says, no one's going to snatch you out of my hand. Can Jesus Christ keep his promises? Let's end with this. Uh, The very uh, end of Romans, Romans 16, I'd like to read to you the doxology. What's a doxology? A doxology is something that they would pray, that they would sing. It's like a short hymn that was a prayer. You'd sing this prayer to God, and you would do it repeatedly. They do it very often. And the end of Romans is a doxology, something that they would do all the time, something they would think about, something they were consumed with, something that they thought was so important that they had to focus their energy and their thoughts over and over. And Paul writes this. He's, stay focused on this. At the end of Romans, after everything that I've said, make sure that all of your energy and horsepower is like, keep going this way. And so he directs their thoughts. And of course, music moves us so deeply emotionally in a profound way. He's moving that. I want you to think about this. So here's what he says. Now to him who is able to establish you in accordance with my gospel, the message I proclaim about Jesus Christ in keeping with the revelation of the mystery. The words that I underline and put in bold are really important. The revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known through the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God so that all the Gentiles might come to the obedience that comes from faith to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. Paul, and as we have been saying through this series, this is the most concentrated section in the entire Bible, the letter to the Roman church. The most concentrated section on two things. Number one, the gospel, and secondly, the Holy Spirit. Number one, the gospel. Secondly, the Holy Spirit. And that is very important to take note of. Paul is completely fascinated with the gospel. His life is the gospel. He was stoned, beaten, shipwrecked, but he had to keep going. He's like the energizer bunny. And he's totally focused on one thing, the gospel, the gospel, the gospel. Not so much about how to live. 
but really focused on understanding and explaining and praying and asking God enlightened about this powerful thing that he talks about is the gospel. He finds it magnificent. He's consumed by it. He could not stop talking or writing about the gospel. There's a a preacher, a British preacher, lived about 100 plus years ago or so. His name is uh, Spurgeon. They called him the Prince of Preachers. He was an incredible preacher, incredible preacher. And uh, when mega churches weren't a big deal, he had a mega church hundreds of years ago in London. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And this guy, I read, um, I read about him. He said this. This is his quote. He said, I take every text, I read through the text when I preach it, and then I make a beeline to the gospel. I thought, well, how? I mean, my own life as a young preacher, I was like, I mean, okay. I mean, maybe I could talk about the gospel for one sermon, but what are you going to do after that? I mean, Jesus died for us, and he forgave us, and okay, now let's spend all of our time talking about how we should live. How do you, how do you take every text in Scripture and focus back on the gospel? This guy was fascinated by the gospel. Paul was fascinated by the gospel. He was like, what is this? This is amazing. I've never seen anything like it before. We're told in First Peter that the angels of heaven are like staring with their jaws wide open because they're like, can you believe what Jesus Christ has done? Are you fascinated by the gospel? It would seem to me from reading the scriptures and reading the lives of other people that once you actually understand this thing, you can't stop thinking about this. Like you can't stop being fascinated by its power. You're overwhelmed with it. Overwhelmed completely. We should want to, as the early church did, want to learn and grow in our understanding of the gospel. We're told that it is a mystery. I want to read a quote, and then I want to explain something, and we're going to close out. Dallas Willard says this. As leaders of the church, we are in the salvation business. The whole of the gospel is intent on deliverance. Our opportunity and our problem is making sure we understand exactly what salvation means, all of it. Early on in my ministry, I had no understanding of the gospel. Okay, Jesus died for me. Now I have to basically preach about and live a life where I talk about here's how you live, here how, here's how I should live all the time because if I don't live a certain way, I'm going, to, I'm going to lose my relationship with God. And when I finally understood the gospel, all of that went away, but also I had this transformation of just wanting to please God, of wanting to live for God. I lost this question about, yeah, but if we're eternally secure, I'll live any way I want. I, I, I never even asked the question anymore. I found myself not worrying about other people. If they were eternally secure because of the gospel, they would live any way they want. Because it was, had such a powerful impact on me. His love was poured into my heart in a powerful way. That, that thought didn't even come, didn't even come to my mind. The early church, I have been spending for the past number of months doing a lot of reading about the early church, like the Roman church. I want to know what was going on. In the book of Acts, the book of Acts is like a history of the church, like the first 20 or 30 or 40 years of the church. I wanted to know what's happening in Rome, what's happening in the early church. Where do they put their time? Where do they put their energy? They did not put their time in telling people how they should live. Where they put their time, of course, by Paul encouraging this constantly over and over again, is 
understanding the gospel, of praying for understanding, and of explaining as best they could what is this gospel. Not how they were living, but why they were living the way that they were. In the early church, in the book of Acts, in Rome here, what we're talking about is the Roman society back in those days did not believe in conversion. You didn't convert. You didn't convert from one religion or one faith to another. You didn't do that. You, you added. There was no conversion. There was addition. You just, there was tremendous spiritual pluralism. You just added on whatever God. And it didn't really matter. Belief didn't matter. It was all about practice is what you did. And here, the Christians came along and they're like, emphatically, no, you must convert. You must completely convert to Jesus Christ. And that got them in trouble. Like, that's radically exclusive, isn't it? So we say, Jesus Christ is the only way. He's the only way, the truth, and life. And we say, hey, man, that's radically, that's radically exclusive. How could you do that? But here's the fascinating thing. You ready for this? The atmosphere, the culture there spiritually was to be radically inclusive spiritually. But the net result of all that is they were radically exclusively. They were totally separated from each other. Rich and poor, slave and free, men and women. They were racially separated with each other. And here you have Christians coming along and they have never seen anything like this before. They were radically exclusive that Jesus Christ is the only way. It's a radically exclusive claim. It is. But do you know the net result of it? This is a historical fact. The net result of it is young and old, rich and poor, slave and free, male and female, all races, they sat down at a common table together. You would have, you would have rich people in a church service sitting in a place of honor and a poor person would come in from the field and the rich person would get out of his chair and say, take this seat of honor and I am going to sit on the floor. And Roman society said, we have never seen anything like this. How did this radical exclusivity lead to radical inclusivity? Socially, racially, gender, all of these ways. But this is what they believed because it so changed them. Do you want to change the world? The world changed 2,000 years ago. Everybody knows that. Christian historians, secular historians, everybody says, oh my gosh, we don't know what happened, but something happened. Do you want to see the world change? Where they put their time and energy was this. Not how to live, but what is this thing that we've been talking about for nine weeks? One last thing. What? Just one last. He says it's a mystery. I love mysteries. Anybody love mysteries? Anybody? I love mysteries. Love to try to figure it out. The problem with that word mystery is the word in Greek for mystery is pretty much the exact opposite from our word in English, mystery. So in our word, English, mystery, mystery is something I try to figure out. I might have to work really hard. Might be a tough mystery, but I work really hard and I try to figure it out by my own effort and I solve the mystery. That's not the, what the Greek word mystery means. The Greek word mystery means it is impossible for you to figure out. You'll never figure it out unless God comes and explains it to you. That's why there's such a concentration on the work of the Holy Spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 2.8, he says, even your faith in the gospel is a gift from God. You didn't have it. You weren't born into it. Oh, I've always believed. I just grew up in church. I've always, I've always believed. I've always believed. No, 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 no. There had to come a moment. There had to come a time. Maybe it was a process. Maybe there was an awakening over a period of time where it's like, 
The Holy Spirit has come and awakened you. And so what they did is they put all their time and their energy and their prayer and their horsepower and not how you should live. They just wanted people to experience the fall of the Spirit on their lives to be awakened to what it is because we can't understand it by ourselves. They did their best to explain it because God told them to, but they prayed. And so where does the church begin in Acts chapter 1 and 2? In a prayer meeting. And they're praying for the Holy Spirit to fall so that people can be awakened to a revelation. A revelation only happens happens by God of this gospel because we can't understand it ourselves because it's counterintuitive and they were just thought it was so magnificent are you fascinated with the gospel if you're fascinated by it then you felt its power and if you have you spend your best horsepower praying and believing and spreading the good news about it and you're here this morning and maybe for the first time like you know what there's something different There's something I'm starting to understand that I've never understood before. One of the clear things about the early church is they expected the Holy Spirit to show up. And we expect the Holy Spirit to show up today too. At West Falls Church here in this room on Grace Live. And maybe the Holy Spirit has shown up to you. And you're like, wait a minute. I've understood something about the gospel, about Jesus Christ that I never have before. I would ask you to accept that, to receive it as a gift from God. If you're watching online, hit the prayer button. If you're here in this room, maybe you want to pray something or over at West Falls Church, maybe you want to pray something like this. Jesus, I now understand. Be the Lord and the Savior of my life. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your incredible love and the total security that we can have in your love, that we stand in unlimited grace for those who have been awakened for the first time today. May your love just pour, pour, pour into their hearts. In Christ's name, amen.